Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch, and her latest story, in collaboration with another nonprofit news outlet, The Frontier, she revealed the state is refusing to release a report on a troubled pandemic relief program for parents. Jennifer, you've been trying to get a copy of a report on one of Governor Stitt's pandemic relief programs for students. Who wrote the report and why did they write it? This was a report that the state um, hired a private contractor to review as part of its CARES Act monitoring. Um, she is, uh, uh, her name is Jill Geiger, and she's a former state budget director who's now uh, owns her own firm. And the, you know, you, the federal government requires these reports as part of receiving this money under the CARES Act. And so that report uh, would be a public record, wouldn't it? I mean, we certainly think so. Um, there, there was public money in the program. It was funded with public money. The contractor was hired with public money. We see no reason why it shouldn't be a public report. And uh, have there been some, some other reports, some other reporting? What did those find? Right. So part of Kevin Stitt's um, money that he got through the CARES Act um, called the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Program, he funded five different programs we put in a records request for the reports on all five of them. And the state did release three of those reports under the records request, but is withholding the other two. And those are the two that were handled by Class Wallet, the Florida company that we've written about. So what, so uh, maybe some people listening don't know the procedure, but you file the open records uh, requests according uh, in compliance with the Open Records Act. And in this case, when you filed those, what happened? I mean, right away, you know, they provided the other three reports and um, the state has provided several reasons for not releasing the other two. And what what reasons are they giving? They've given several different reasons. The governor's office has said that the report was prepared for a potential lawsuit. They have said that they are planning to sue this company in Florida that handled these two programs. Our argument for that is there is no lawsuit yet and it should be open. Um, They've also said that it's in draft form, which doesn't make any sense either. They released the other three. They were all submitted early this year, like January. And then um, OMES uh, gave a, a different exemption. They said that it was personal notes and personally created material, and that's why it couldn't be released. Um, on those last two points, as I recall in the Open Records Act, um, a record that would otherwise be open to the public does not become exempt because you add it to a litigation file, does it? That's right. And um, notes, drafts, anything that's created uh, as part of your job as a public official is still a public record. Isn't that correct? That's right. There's no exemption for, oh, it was just a scribble on my scratch pad. 
Right. And this report is far from a scribble on a scratch pad. I mean, it was created by a, um, you know, a contractor who um, was monitoring these funds. We have an attorney advising us who says this is absolutely an open record. Okay. So um, this happens frequently, right? Reporters seek records from government entities, from from publicly funded bodies that the taxpayers are paying for, the taxpayers own the records, the law says they have a right to see those records, they're being created on the taxpayer's behalf. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the majority of those requests come, for, come from reporters. Um, it's often the media that's looking for those and then uh, kind of doing that on the public's behalf. But why, why write a story about the administration's denial of the records? It's true that we don't typically write a story. I mean, I filed more than 50 records requests last year. Many were filled. Some were not. Some, you know, were pending for a probably unreasonable amount of time. But in this case, because our story last week on the troubled program, the digital wallet program, um, had a lot of implications for this federal money and, and you know, the public and and really has some policy issues um, for education in the state, we felt like, you know, readers really needed to know that there the state had created this report and was refusing to release it. So what's the big picture about why this specific report is important to shed light on this program? Um, you know, it's been funded with millions of, of federal COVID relief dollars, but, but why is this important? As this report was created, there's also a federal audit that's going on that will shed a lot of light on this program. This report actually is is probably very short um, and not very detailed. When I look at the three that they provided, they're all about 10 pages long. They do like a random sample of, of transactions. But I think in the grand scheme of things, this is a policy issue. I mean, this is how the Stitt administration and Ryan Walters, the Secretary of Ed, who is running for state superintendent, handled, you know, $18 million through no-bid contracts and with little guardrails to prevent fraud. And we think, you know, voters and the public deserves to know. So uh, the program we're referring to, you wrote about that earlier, um, fraught with problems, right? Parents uh, using the money to purchase, you know, video game systems and Christmas trees and television sets. Uh, So not all of the money going toward uh, students and teachers and helping with their education. Is that right? That's right. And what kind of feedback do you get on that story? I've heard from a lot of folks who were very um, grateful that we revealed this information. It was something that they really wanted to know. Um, and a lot of other news outlets picked up the story, so we're grateful for that as well. All right. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, You can read Jennifer's stories about uh, this contract and the open records fight and all her other investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm talking to reporter Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest story, he examined how a lack of local justice data 
complicates reform efforts. Keaton, what are some examples of the data that the state is not compiling? Yeah, so as you mentioned, a lot of it's on the local level. Examples include average jail stay, the demographics of jails over months or years at a time, uh, charging decisions made by district attorneys. Uh, So a lot of it's happening at the local level, and we don't have aggregate data to show what's happening, you know, in certain places apart in the state and the state as a whole. Uh, You know, corrections system records are public records. Shouldn't it be easy to collect that information? So it's easy to track one case or a set of cases either online or going to the courthouse itself. It's a lot more difficult to get this kind of aggregate information of, you know, thousands of cases just because each courthouse, each part of the state collects this data differently, has their own system. Some have better technology than others, and it's just kind of everyone's doing it their own way, and there hasn't been a centralized uh, collection system of any kind. Well, how about the legislature? Are there any state lawmakers looking at that problem? There are a few, and there were there were efforts in this legislative session to start collecting more data. One bill in particular, House Bill 3848 uh, by State Representative Melody Blancett, would have mandated data collection from jails, district attorneys, sheriffs, um, all those different stakeholders by the end of 2024. Ultimately, it, it didn't get past a committee deadline and won't be eligible to be considered until next year. Well, uh, next year, if the legislation were to pass, how long would it take to get a justice data system up and running? Several years, more than likely. Florida is one example. Their legislature passed a similar bill back in 2018, and they're just now getting their system up and running to where the legislature, the public can go in and see what's happening, the district attorney's office or their local jail. So a lot of it just comes down to the fact that our court systems are using outdated technology, and it would take a lot of resources and uh, financial and manpower to go in there and get them better technology and get a system set up to where they can start reporting that information. Would lawmakers benefit from from having that data? Absolutely. Um, I, I talked to a few um, who were active in this effort in trying to get better data coming in. And, you know, they mentioned, like, if you don't have data showing that you need more drug courts in a certain part of the state or that, you know, a certain system is incarcerating too many people or overcharging a certain crime, like, unless you have concrete information that that's happening, it's kind of a he said, she said type of situation where you want to take people at their word, um, but it's it's mu- much better to have you know numbers and data to back up the policy that you want to get through. What about the public? Is there any any benefit to the rest of Oklahomans? There is. Um, just knowing how your local justice system is operating, these numbers would be very beneficial for that. You could see how many people are in your local jail, why they're there, um, how your district attorney's office is functioning. You know, for a few different reasons, most district attorney races this upcoming year, 23 out of 27 are uncontested. 
And some of that has to do with rural areas. There aren't as many attorneys living there, um, you know, just not as many people in general. So those are more likely to be uncontested. Um, but a part of it, too, is that there's without data showing how it's operating, it can be harder for someone who's maybe not satisfied with this current status quo to to put up a good challenge. So it would help with transparency and uh, possibly making those, you know, district attorney or judges races more competitive. Okay, so it, it wouldn't necessarily require the legislature to pass a law for the the correction system to update their their data collections, right? They could do that voluntarily, um, but but the bill that was proposed uh, didn't go anywhere this year, so it, it ran into some opposition somehow. Who would be opposed to uh, better data? Yeah, so a lot of the the opposition or, or roadblocks this year were just the the technological side that there, there needs to be more study and figuring out how we're going to overcome that, and lawmakers plan to study that this summer. Um, one potential group that could be opposed to this is, um, you know, just your district attorneys and sheriffs. Um, and I talked to one expert on prosecutorial practices who mentioned, you know, there, there is likely the concern that if the information gets out there, even if you're not, you know, acting inappropriately or with malfeasance, there's a concern that the numbers could be misconstrued, taken out of context, and that you'd be attacked for that. Um, but he mentioned, you know, that's just part of the the job of an elected official is that um, sometimes you have to come out and and give your side, and you're gonna you're gonna be attacked from certain people. Um, that doesn't mean the data should be um, not collected or made public. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You were listening to Keaton Ross, our criminal justice reporter in this segment. You can read all of Keaton's work on our website at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Paul Monies, who covers state agency and public health. Paul has written a lot of investigative stories in his career. Some of those have been based on leaks. He joins us now to talk about the long journalistic tradition of dealing with leaks and how they're vetted and reported. Paul, leaks have been in the news after the draft uh, majority opinion by Justice Alito on abortion was leaked uh, to the the Washington, D.C. media outlet Politico last week. Without getting into the abortion debate, what other big stories have been revealed via leaks? Yeah, so there's obviously a long journalistic tradition of, of leaking uh, information um, and getting those leaks and, and doing something with them. Uh, you know, in the modern era, it obviously starts with the big ones in the Pentagon Papers in 1971. Uh, that was the secret history of the Vietnam War that the Johnson administration had sponsored. Um, had a lot of things in there across several presidencies, including Kennedy um, and Nixon, that they didn't want out in the public. And, of course, New York Times had gotten copies of that. It was a huge leak. Um, they spent many months looking at it internally. Their attorneys uh, even uh, – went back and forth with whether or not it should be published as well, but eventually it was, and it had a lot of re- revelations out there. Now, um, you know, more recently, we've, we've heard some leaks from, on the, the President Trump's tax documents from last year that the New York Times got a hold of, and famously, President Trump had, you know, decided not to release those tax 
documents while he was running for office and in office. Um, you know, it runs a gamut more recently, too, of, of a couple of ones in, involving offshore tax havens on an international scale. Uh, the Panama Papers in 2013 and um, the Pandora Papers last year that went to a lot of that stuff. So even with social media and the seemingly, you know, nonstop commentary on every conceivable topic, why do leaks still resonate with the public? Well, I think it just comes down to it's just brand new information that nobody knew about before. Um, and whether or not it was super secret or, or not secret at all or just kind of the, the back and forth of policy discussions, it wasn't out there in the public realm beforehand. And so it obviously still resonates and cuts through. And especially with last week's revelation, abortion has always been a, a kind of hot topic throughout the last 50 years or so uh, on, on both sides of that issue. And, you know, obviously it's something that people are talking about now on the policy side. Uh, but more than anything else, it's just the unvarnished truth of, of internal workings of government that is sometimes a lot more revelatory than, you know, press releases or press conferences can be. So uh, how do reporters evaluate leaks? Do you wonder about the motivations of the leakers? Of course you do. I mean, that's that's always kind of one of the first questions you ask about why why is this coming to me? Why is this person talking about this? Uh, you know, it could just be as simple as they don't like the wrongdoing or the bad policy that's getting made. Uh, but, you know, it's on the reporters to, to definitely do a lot of work once they get that leaked information to make sure it's authentic. I mean, because you don't want to have anybody be tricked. Uh, you don't want to be tricked yourself as a reporter and put bad information out there. Um, you know, sometimes if it's too good to be true, it may be a fake. And that's almost a lot easier to, to manufacture these days, unfortunately. So there's a lot of vetting that goes on when you get leaked documents or leaked files and leaked information. So, you know, in a lot of cases, Paul, um, the person who is uh, leaking the information also uh, wants to remain anonymous, right? And and then you get into that quagmire of uh, off-the-record sources or anonymous sources or or sources talking to you on background or, you know, all those, all those variations. Um, Tell me a little bit about that and and how do you handle those who have the information to share? They understand the information. They could add a lot of information to it verbally, but they don't want to be part of the story. Yeah, that's always a juggling act and you kind of have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, um, you know, a lot of times they might want to just give you a report where their name is not featured at all, but they think it's important to get out there or may, maybe have emails that they are on themselves and then it gets a bit tricky in terms of negotiating, like, can we use this? Should we use this? Um, you know, a lot of times you can um, ask the leaker, uh, hey, we need to do something with this, but we need to check it out. If we can get other people to go on the record, will you then go on the record? And so there's maybe some safety in numbers there as well. Um, and also, too, you can uh, go back and say, well, you know, this is really important information. We can't get it anywhere else. Do you, are you sure you still don't want to comment on the record? And, of course, it's not as simple as just on and off the record. There's different variations of that that you have to negotiate with sources as well. So why is it important for a source to go on the record? Well, I mean, I think it's just credibility for everybody involved. Um, you know, the, the, the cardinal thing on, on um, anonymous quotes and, and off-the-record quotes is that you don't want to use people to take people's characters down um, just because they're hiding behind an anonymous quote. Um, there has to be a good public policy reason, especially for us at Oklahoma Watch, to allow people to go off the record. Um, and so normally our first instinct is say no, um, but then we kind of start negotiating and, you know, it's always a balancing act on, on what is worth being anonymous and what has to be on the record. And, and I think it's fair to say, uh, if you'd agree, that that 
reputable uh, news outlets have a uh, have a pretty restrictive checklist uh, that has to be met before they'll agree to um, take information off the record, isn't there? That's right. Yeah, we have to make sure that obviously that it's it's true, and we do some vetting there too. And we have to make sure obviously that we're not we're not going to get sued as a news outlet either if there's bad information or a bad faith effort even that we haven't done our, our vetting process properly. And and that that source faces some legitimate catastrophic threat if they were to be associated with the story, and and that we can't get the information anywhere else. And right, right there's some that's, some pretty stringent rules. Of course, yeah. I mean that's that's. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with people who may have a, a life and career at risk. Um, and so they're obviously taking a huge gamble themselves and even talking to us in the first place. And so to make that as easy as possible for them, but also know that they may face consequences at their work and know those risks as well. But I mean, a lot of people will think that it's worth it and they do give it to us. Um, sometimes we pursue stuff that just doesn't go anywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, but but we look at at legitimate uh, threats to that person's uh, livelihood or or uh, well being, right? Not just oh, I'd rather not have my name in the paper. Kind That's of, right. Yeah, of, it's not just a, a small case of you know a minor embarrassment one day or whatever because your words are in the paper. So what what's changed over the last few decades in terms of getting information from public officials? Well, definitely the, the technology has changed a lot of stuff in terms of the scale of information. I mean, def, um, the last you know, last big few leaks we've seen that's resonated worldwide have been millions of documents that are in computer files, obviously. And, you know, you think back to the Pentagon Papers, you know, that was secretly smuggled out um, of a think tank and photocopied on an old ancient Xerox machine that you had to have stacks and stacks of paper for. So definitely it's a lot easier to share volumes of documents these days, but it's also uh, adds another layer of, you know, trying to fact check and verify that information in the first place, because it's pretty easy as well to manipulate a digital document too. What, uh, Paul, in your career, what's your favorite leak that you've been able to report? Uh, this one happened maybe four or five years ago when the health department was having some financial problems. Um, I had a, a few sources inside the department that had access to a lot of information at the financial level, uh, including you know what we call kind of the bombshell memo that laid out exactly what had gone on during that financial um, period where they couldn't find $30 million, um, had a really expansive records request and targeted records request as well, but finally got a copy of this a couple of weeks before they were due to, to testify in front of a House investigative committee. How about uh, anything that comes to mind that uh, Oklahoma Watch has reported recently as the result of, of a leak? Yeah, we've got a couple of stories in the hopper that I can't really share anything about right now, but I know that more more recently our, our colleague Whitney Bryan had written about um, a domestic violence nonprofit um, and the director had spent some money on on trips to, to California and other places. Uh, she had gotten that as a result of, of a leaked document, uh, I think a leaked audit uh, report that someone had given her. So that's one of the more recent re examples for us. And, and so really what it comes down to, uh, Paul, I think uh, you might agree is that um, when a uh, when somebody knows of some wrongdoing and they they share a document that proves that uh, with a journalist, they they help shed light on it and expose it and and right the wrong. Um, but a lot of times, uh, you know, reporters don't have crystal balls, right? They they don't even know that document exists. They have no way to go look for it or ask for it uh, unless somebody on the inside goes, "Hey, maybe you want to maybe you want to read this, right?" That's right. Yeah, I mean it, that's that's the the best part of of getting the investigative documents together is this stuff was not known before or it was known by a handful of people inside and maybe they talked about it um, 
but especially if it comes to wrongdoing, getting that out there and getting it fixed and the issue resolved is, is obviously pretty rewarding for everybody involved. All right, Paul. Well, thanks so much. Paul Money's uh, reports on state government and state agencies for Oklahoma Watch. You can read all of his investigative work at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.